Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Galaxy Geekdom Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Krista Williams, and I'm joined by my equally talented, amazing co-host, Lizzie. Hi! And um, we're kind of doing an episode. Yeah, we're kind of doing an episode of just the two of us, which uh, is well, bringing back some memories. Yeah. Some. I'm usually the one who uh, disappears. <laughs> that's true. And for some reason, the episode we did together last disappeared too. Don't give me a peek. Be like that, Crystal. Huh? It'd be like that. <laughs> you know, before we were recording and we were talking about things before, I know we actually have communication outside of just this little framework of what you're hearing us, listeners. We uh, Crystal. We just live in this perpetual void. Oh, that's right. And where we we live, in, we, we live in the upside down. We bleed in and out of existence. Uh, by by the necessity of recording this podcast. Yes. <laughs> it's very painful. It, it's excruciating, but we do it for the people. We do it for the fans. And the, the ceiling fans. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do we want to talk about which which weird supernatural um, science fiction um, drama centered on the tragic death of a young person in a small town do you want to talk about, Crystal? We should talk about it. Perfect. There we go. <laughs> so yeah, Stephen King's it. Uh, King's it. Um, he had he's very high on cocaine while writing it, and for some reason has the small children have an orgy. That is true. There's also a giant spider. There was also a giant spider for no reason. I understand. I understand that Stephen King made up a reason. I don't care. There was no reason for it to be a giant. <laughs> Spider. Maybe he saw a spider and got scared. He saw, uh, yes, that's exactly what happened. Is he was coked out of his mind writing the book. <laughs> he saw a spider and was like, <laughs> so spooky. That's meant to be like the the source and epitome of misery and evil. Spider. <laughs> well, spiders are spooky. Yeah, yeah, and um, um I think we should we should we you, I think we should actually talk about <laughs> the supernatural small town around a dead person. Um we kind of teased it last week. Um I think we should start off by talking about um Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks. I still have not finished season one. I'm watching it at a slow crawl because my life is, um, I'm an easily distracted person. I really wonderful. Oh, really? Yeah. I know. It's shocking news. Couldn't, I couldn't tell. No one is ever been able to tell after listening to me say one sentence. It's not really obvious. Um, I should say attempt. 
attempt to say a singular sentence. Uh, but yet, I'm, I'm watching Twin Peaks for the very first time. Uh, mm-hmm. weird as fuck. Weird as fuck. Um, I love Kyle McLaughlin, Baby Angel. He is phenomenal. Um, I, I don't know what's going on at all. Uh, that's kind of what everyone who watches Twin Peaks says. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a vibe. It's a vibe. It's a vibe. I really no. I'm actually. I'm very, very into it. I think it's very good. Um, listen, for context, my two favorite TV shows are Gravity Falls and Stranger Things. Hmm. So literally, everybody and their mother, like and Twin Peaks, is like obviously one of the absolute biggest influences on both of those things, right? So. Everyone and their mother for years has been telling me, and, and I'm also just, I'm a horror person, and I love women in horror, and I love horror that focuses and centers around um, women and their personhood. So everyone and their mother for years and years and years is like, oh, you would love Twin Peaks. How have you never seen Twin Peaks? You'd love it, you'd love it, you'd love it. And I believe all of you, for the record. I never didn't think that that would be the case. Um, but, you know, you get to a point where a thing is so hyped up that you're like, it's going to disappoint me if I watch it now. <laughs> it's not going to live up to what everyone's telling me it is, which um, I need to watch all of it before I can say whether or not it's truly lived up to uh, whatever, how much I, everyone said I would love it. But it's great. It's definitely great. It's very weird. I love David Lynch. It is a, it is a, strange, it is a strange cookie of a show. I... I... I was telling you, you that I'm excited to win you. You, uh, I mean, right now it's great and it's strange and it's interesting, but like, you're just at the tip of the iceberg. You're at the most comprehensible stuff about the show. <laughs> Without spoiling, I'm just, I'm just, just, you have to hold on because it feels like everything, like, it's all connected, but it all feels like separate in a weird way. Like, each entity has its own vibes to it like first season feels very different from the second season the second season feels extremely different from uh firewalk with me the movie and firewalk with me the movie is close but still feels extremely different to the return uh so but i i think i think i think you'll appreciate it and i, I think so far i sounds like you're already enjoying the characters and the world building and the the weird kookiness of it. There's a lady with a log. I think that the I think the the thing that uh, is definitely that definitely like got me the most attached very immediately wasn't necessarily any of the mystery elements. It was definitely that I was immediately I got super attached to the all of these characters very quickly and very easily. Yeah, they're extremely well-written and likable characters. They are. They're really, really great. I'm really invested. Like, I, I was just really invested um, because every our introductory scene to all of these people um, immediately communicates that there's more to them than whatever archetype you're expecting them to fill. Right. Like, it's a very good, it's a very well-written in that sense that I can, um, 
I would actually honestly compare it to, in, a, in quite a and this is, is it going to sound like a tangent, but please trust me. <laughs> um, there's a movie called, uh, there's a movie called The Woman, uh, which is great. It's, uh, from Lucky McGee. Uh, if you can, if you like, um, rape revenge movies, I recommend it, but I caution with a giant trigger warning that it's got a lot of graphic depiction of sexual assault and violence against women. Like, it's not, it's not a movie that holds back, but it's great. Um, and I remember the first time I ever sat down to watch that movie, the opening, I knew everything I needed to know about the care, the, the, um, four main characters in the family at the center of this movie in the first, with very little, di- with little to no dialogue in the first like 40 seconds of watching it. It was communicated so well through, um, Glances and staging and the the um, juxtaposition of where these characters stood near each other, um, because the, the throughline of the movie is that the dad, the patriarch of this family, is clearly an is an, an abuser, right? He's abusing his children and his wife in differing types of ways. And I was able, I I sat down, I watched this movie, I watched these characters just be in a public space together. And I knew, I knew immediately. I was like, this is an off family dynamic immensely. And I can tell exactly how the dad uh, abuses the son by indoctrinating him into uh, violent patriarchy as direct contrast to abusing his wife by hitting her, in direct contrast to abusing his daughter by, you know, predictably horrible things. So it's, like, it's so well put together. And in a similar sense, when I was watching the first episode of Twin Peaks, I felt the same way when I would meet each character for the first time. Something about the way that they're just staged in their settings and the way the expressions they exchange with other characters and the one or two first of their first few lines of dialogue, it just tells me so much about them. And that there's immediately a sense of this being a whole person. The mom immediately did not just feel like a mom. I was like, no, I feel like I know who this person is. She's, this is clearly a three-dimensional person. Mm-hmm. And I thought that wait, the sheriff is not just the sheriff, and the ladies working at the diner are not just ladies working at the diner. Like, there's just immediate this immediate sense with all of them that I'm like, you're a complicated person. They all feel so complicated, and I appreciate that so much because... Like, yes, you go into a show assuming that these characters are not going to be one-dimensional archetypes, but it takes some time to get to know them, to get to the place where you're able to think of them beyond that. It's very rare, I think, and it takes very good skilled writing to communicate that to me so succinctly and simply and and so immediately. Absolutely. I You know, it's... You know what I find really interesting about something like Twin Peaks is that um, a lot of TV shows at the time were much more episode of the week, as in there wasn't like a continuing uh, through line or story, especially like detective sort of shows. You would find, you would find, you know, there'd be like someone who's dead, there'd be investigation, and then you find the killer at the end of the episode. And then basically that, that that all would be wiped clean by the next time you watch the next episode. 
But Twin Peaks took the this approach and actually like made it like real in a way, um, while also having the surreal. Uh, um, but I, I think it's really telling that like th- that's one of the first shows to really do this style, and still so many shows try and attempt it, but can't quite live up to it. I think that says something about it as as a as a as a show. I agree. I think I think that that's that's a super interesting I Twin Peaks in a lot of ways is I feel because it came out in ninety one, ninety two, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's very much and I think the context in which it came out is very ahead of its time. Which is actually what you were getting at, right? Which is that so many other TV shows at the time were extremely self-contained. So Twin Peaks was really ahead of its time in the degree of um, long-form storytelling that it was attempting. Mm -hmm. Week to week. Um, And it feels like the structure of the show is one that got that that super head, that just very heavily inspired um, the, the prestige television that was to come uh, in the decade that followed it. Yeah. Like, when we got to, like, I know when we talk about this, people tend have a tendency to think of, like, Orange is the New Black and uh, Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones. But predating that a little bit is, like, you know, The Sopranos and Dexter. Oz? Was Oz like that? And what? Oz. Oz was a prison show on HBO. Oh, I'm unfamiliar with this show, but I believe, but probably. J.K. Simmons was in it. It was in, in like, the late 90s. The J.K. Simmons prison show. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, I am familiar. Never mind. (laughs) I've never seen it, but I just. I've never seen it. But, like. You know, you got in the in the mid two thousands. You saw the um, the beginning of the summit for this sort of uh, model of television. Um, that I think Twin Peaks really, really pioneered. Where it's like this is a full like the, it's it's this very long, complicated story being unfolded to you um, in a way that it was. Easier to accomplish, you know, when we were getting more into, when we, when, you know, when we were living in a world where it was first satellite TV, so it was easier for people to actually, for like, more people to actually, like, reliably have these channels and they could record episodes if they were going to miss it and stuff. And also, and that's why this type of, that type of TV show just absolutely soared through the roof once we had streaming. Yeah. We live in a completely, we live in a landscape of television that's so fundamentally different than what 1992 looked like. Um, and I think, so in, in that sense, uh, Twin Peaks was definitely ahead of its time in this, the structure of its writing and its story. I, um. Because I what so too much relies on you having seen the one before. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. Um. It definitely was, I mean, there's a reason why I got suddenly popular, you know, 
it's just a shame that it got suddenly unpopular too. Huh. People I, discarded it really easily, you know. I said this before. Well, because Twin Peaks was regarded as a cult classic for a long time, right? Well, it was a cultural phenomenon for the time the first season was coming out. Okay. But then through season two, it it just dropped off hard. But I think that's also because of what happens in season two that I won't say anything. But there's a point when David Lynch leaves the show. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> it's hard to make this work if David Lynch is not the puppet master, but... That's my warning for you in season two. I still like it, but there's a, there's a series of, I would say, about maybe ten episodes, because it's almost like 20, some, I think it's like a 20, 20 episode season or something like that. There's about ten or eleven episodes where I still enjoy it, but they it definitely feels a little bit more directionless, you know, um, because it doesn't have their captain <laughs> at the front. Um, and things happened where Lynch never wanted to happen, but Lynch does come back for the finale of season two and probably delivers the best episode of the entire series, (laughs) or at least I should say the, the entire original series, you know, um, so I won't spoil, but I'm, I'm very curious when you go through that section. I will hopefully be finished with it next week, and we can finish at least the season one by next week. Can, um, can I can I tell you something non-spoilery that you should be excited about, or do you want no, 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 nothing to know about? No, go ahead. Twi- uh, David Lynch joins the show as a character. Ah! So you, you'll see him on screen. He becomes a really big part. Okay. And he plays one of my favorite characters. I said this before we started recording, but I'm just like, here's the thing, right? I am going into Twin Peaks with the knowledge that it gets really weird, right? Like, I'm aware. Yes. I absorb the cultural osmosis of that. I'm fascinated at the average viewer in 1992 just sitting at home tuning into this TV show who for, for whom, like, the last, first couple episodes, it was like... Not a basic police procedural or anything, but like, like you know, it's it's it's, it's, normal. Um, it's, it's, it's easy to understand. And yeah, the agent is coming to investigate the murder in this small town. Okay, okay. And then out of nowhere, Agent Cooper is like having these psychic dreams in a red room with a small person, with a little person who we've never met before, and the ghost of the the identical. Uh, twin ghosts of Laura Palmer and they're speaking in some sort of uh, pig Latin. Gosh. Yeah. So, they put old age makeup on him for this dream sequence. <laughs> this psychic dream sequence. I'm like, how, what? I'm just imagine, trying to imagine the experience of just being a regular ass TV viewer in 1992 and this just happening all of a sudden. Oh, I very curious. I think people liked it. I'm sure because uh, for the first season to have been so as big as big a thing as 
as it was, it just must have been that you must. I I I feel like I would have been like, did I take drugs and forget? <laughs> In the fact that these these dream sequences actual have like material, oh, yeah. like <laughs> it's not even that it's just him having a weird dream. <laughs> this isn't a weird. They're not. They're not dreams. They're not even really dreams. They're. They're not feminine either. They're like visions. They are in worlds. In universe. <laughs> they're what you see there actually happens. Bro, what is it? <laughs> That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not metaphorical, it's like literal. It's the real thing that he's just experiencing. Okay. I Okay. Um, the two other things about in regards to some feet I very much want to touch on. Uh, one, Dale Cooper is autistic. I'm not hearing uh, debate about it. Uh, he he's definitely. See, uh, I think when you pointed it out, that was really good because I wouldn't have really put it to my mind. I do consider Dale, and I think the show considers Dale as the moral center for Lynch's um, storytelling. He he yeah. is the perfect example of someone who is pure good. Not a perfect it's, person, but a good a, a yes, I agree, a pure per, purely good person. And yes, I, for sure. That is the through line throughout the entirety of it. By the way, good. I I don't think I would like it if they gave him a heel turn. Um. Okay. No, that's a bad response. Anyway. No, no, no. no I mean, it's complicated. Okay, I trust you. It's very complicated. Um, you should also be very very aware that he barely appears in the movie. Uh-huh. So. <laughs> okay, but he, um, no. There's a lot of reasons why I came to that conclusion that he's autistic, but uh, it, it, it was many, many things. It was somewhat, like, not, it's not that he's bad at in social situations or bad at picking up social cues. He just clearly operates on something of um, a social script. Hmm. He He's very polite, and he's very specific, and he's very intent on, like, this is how, like, like he gives these really, really specific directions for how he wants his coffee and his pie and his, his Meanwhile, meal. Simultaneously, simultaneously the kindest person about it, too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but he's not being, like, rude. He's just so kind. He's very kind. He's very polite. Um, he's got these very specific, like, eccentricity and uh, eccentricities that he very, very much kind of clearly needs to do. To but damn fine coffee. <laughs> damn fine, like he's. I love how much of a square it, he is. I love it. It's a, it's a degree of like a lot of a lot of neurodivergent and especially autistic people kind of get taught, um, or we teach we'll teach ourselves like how to, um, engage in in basic social interactions like this. And it's like, you be direct and polite. Hmm. And it's not that it's not coming naturally to him. It is, that's the thing. Is that he's, is that this is, like, it feels very, very much like this is the correct way to communicate with people. 
And so he's doing it because this is how you communicate easily and directly. Like a lot of um, autistic people also, be, there's a tendency to communicate more literally and less. Like he's never particularly sarcastic. He's never. He doesn't speak in a lot of subtext. Like he's a very, he's very like, but still very, like you said, very kind and sweet and polite and square about it. But he's direct and he's uh, specific. He is one of my favorite television. And it, it it's it's a it's a it's the kind of kind and gentle portrayal of autism that only ever happens by accident. No one in seek no um neurotypical writer who is seeking out to write an autistic character ever writes them with this level of like kindness and friendliness. Yeah. Which is one of the bigger problems. This only ever happens by accident. <laughs> And it's part of why, I, I think a big part of why I like it as much as I do. You know, the more I learn about Lynch, the more he feels, I feel like Lynch puts a lot of himself into Cooper. You know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I need to see, I need to, I need to watch more of the show to come to like any sort of a solid conclusion on that. But I understand what you're saying for sure. Yeah. Uh, no, you you need to get more into it. Um, well, my, cryptically, like hint at things. That I know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait for you to get to the episode and where they there's no, no dialogue whatsoever. Oh my god! This is this is a while. This is re- this is return. It's not only no dialogue. It's it makes no fucking sense. <laughs> I bet it's so fucking good. Oh my god. Um, it's, it's, be prepared. That's all I'm gonna say. The other big thing, um, that I love so far is, and I, listen, I went in expecting this because I, this was a take I saw someone make about the show once and it was a thing that made me want to watch it more than anything else. Um, but it's that Laura Palmer exists as a very full and complete person. Yeah. Despite us never actually getting to meet her, I feel like I know her. Um, and that is... That is a trick that a lot of writers simply don't seem to pull off with stories like this. Because it's so easy to make her um, a pretty dead body on a slab. And maybe she has dark secrets. And it does, like, Lynch very, very succinctly didn't do that. It is a show about her. It's about her, not who killed her. Uh Uh-huh. I think that that's something that a lot of, like, crime writers uh, fail at. They fail to understand that the person I'm supposed to care about is the person who died, not the person who killed them. You're right. Um, and that that gives so much heart and emotion to the show. Uh, we like we never get to hear, at least where I'm at. Like we don't really hear Laura speak. We don't see her live and exist, except through our little like the video, like the camcorder footage. Like we get pictures and you get more. I'm not. I'm not telling you anything. But I believe that we probably get more. Like, there's probably flashbacks later. I shouldn't be making big declarations. But oh, uh, it's 
Or her uh, ghost or some other shit. I mean, do you want me to tell you? No, it's fine. Spoiler about the movie, but what no. the movie is. Stop. Or do no. you? No. No. Shush. <laughs> okay, I, I, but, I, that's why I ask you. I don't want to really. <laughs> I just get excited. I'm sorry. Right? I'm sitting right now at like episode seven, season one. Um, no, I feel like, like, I feel like Laura is the heart, she's the heart of what's happening. She's. She's the whole reason of the show. Yes. Yes. And, yeah. Like the writers forgot that. She doesn't feel like a vessel through which we're going to tell the story. It feels like she's the reason for the story. She's the reason for the show existing. And, and I think that that's. That that's really important in the scheme in a genre so very very swamped with beautiful dead teenage girls. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that anywhere where a writer genuinely puts in this kind of love and effort into the dead girl in question is important and special. And I appreciate yeah. I appreciate it a lot. The show is very um, forged for its time. You know. Mm-hmm. At least I feel it is. It, uh, it, it feels progressive. Not it, perfect. But uh, not to make absolutely everything about Scream, as I always so easily do, but it reminds me, um, one of my favorite details in the opening scene of Scream mm-hmm. um, is the amount of time, is the like extra two beats we spend with Casey's parents. Yeah. We could speed that scene up. Like, that scene could be shorter, but it's really vital that we get these moments of, like, not just, like, terror and horror, but we get this sense of grief. There's yes. just, Casey's mom is, like, staring at her husband, and she's going, like, not not my baby, not my baby. Like, this awful realization dawns on her before they see, before they actually find her body. And I think that it's just so important to, like, the point of 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 Scream, which is this really, really vital moment where we're reminded that what we just watched isn't just, like, a random body being, um, slashed. It's not like other slasher movies where someone dies and then that's it for them. And we carry on. Like, this is someone, this was someone's child. Yeah. It's just a really important thing that the movie, not just Scream, but Scream especially, like a good flasher will force you to sit there and confront that for a second. Someone, yeah. Someone's baby just died. Right. So, like someone's child got mutilated, That's and that, that for, it forces you to feel that pain for a second. And I think that it's just, it's a, it's a good horror should remember that. I think so. At all times. Even though I do like the occasional dumb flasher movie where it's meaningless, but of I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I saw Slumber Party Massacre during Halloween time for the first time, and I enjoyed that movie. I mean, say no, I, I Slumber Party Massacre too, especially where where it's at. That movie's weird. <laughs> that movie, yeah. I was gonna say, speaking of weird nonsense shit. I felt less weirded out during any any of Lynch's movies than I did during that one. Is, I, I, I fucks with it so much. <laughs> um, you should see Slumber Party Massacre too if you want a weird experience. 
if you want a weird time. It's a weird sequel too. Like <laughs> everything about it was. It's really also yeah, it is a weird place to be as a sequel to the original Slumber Party Massacre, like which it clearly didn't have to be. This could have been its own thing. Probably should have been its own thing. Probably yeah. <laughs> like it has nothing to do with the original. <laughs> Outside of the lead character being the sister of the lead character from the first film. They recast, too. And they recast, so it's even more confusing. (laughs) Hey, you know, though, speaking of Slumber Party Massacre, too. Yes. Speaking of murder and metal music. I know where we're going. The Peppa Pig movie. Um... (laughs) Uh, so I finally, I finally started watching season four of Stranger Things, which is like I said. Mm-hmm. What? I said woot woot. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, as I said at the top, Stranger Things is one of my favorite TV shows. I love it for many, many reasons. Um, I've only made it to episode seven because I was binging season four yesterday and it was. One thirty in the morning, and I got to episode 7, which is an hour and a half, and I was like, I'm going to go to sleep. Um, so I'll, I'll give some basic not-spoiler thoughts, um, okay. uh, but then I do want to get into, like, some plot details, if that is... Okay. We, oh. we can spoil. Okay. So, non-spoiler things, big points I do want to say. Um, this is the best the writing on this show has been ever. This is the this is the best season of the show. This is the writing this season is so fucking good. It flows so well. The pacing is immaculate. Like this show. This show, as much as I love this show, its pacing has never been good, and the pacing this season is so, so, so fucking great. Um, the writing, it's tight. It's together. It's I'm following Simultaneously it. tight while each episode is an hour and a half long. I know. I don't know how that... Well, every episode is, like, you know, anywhere from 50 minutes to 50 to 90 minutes. But, like, they've managed to, like... Yes, exactly. Like, every episode is so fucking long, and somehow the writing is, like, airtight, and I don't know how they did that. They they make the the finale, which I won't get into, the two-and-a-half-hour finale feel like nothing. I don't... It's magic. I could... I'm also... I'm a big fan. All the new characters this season, great. Love them. Eddie Munson is my new boyfriend. In love with him. Everybody's in love with Eddie. I know. I realized that this wasn't an, like an original thought, but I don't care. <laughs> no, that's fine. It just means Eddie is Eddie is lovable. I also kind of like that they don't play him up as a stereotype. You know. Well, you feel like they're going to. They set him up that way. They set him up to be a very particular type of person, and then he's very actively not. Yeah. Um, and it works so very, very well. Um, 
I think the big thing for me, okay, so like as much as I love this show, the issues I would frequently have with the previous three seasons, like I said, the pacing in the previous three seasons was always really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, It was what makes the show, and it makes the show start to drag a lot in the middle because the structure of this show is that functionally there's three groups of main characters, right? There's mm-hmm. the there's there's Joyce and Hopper, there's the the younger kids, and there's the teenagers. And who is in those groups and who's doing what mix and matches to an ex, to an extent in mm-hmm. seasons two, three, and four. Um, but what's but like you know that's basically it. Every every season has that structure of like there's these the three different groups. Um, in the first three seasons, the thing is that all these groups were ostensibly doing the same thing, just separately, and that creates this sort of um, frustrating position, for at least for me always as a viewer, where the fact that these groups of people are not communicating with each other, even though they're all trying to figure out the same thing gets really, really annoying. And you get to a point where I'm, where it's like, so you need this information. If you go talk to the other people who you know are also, like, aware of what's going on, who by now you really should have assumed are also have also noticed and are investigating it, you would be solving this much faster. And you get to a point where, like, okay, yes, Joyce, you learned that, but the children figured that out three episodes ago, so it starts to get frustrating as an audience member. It makes the show start to drag a lot in the middle. Um, and that is, like, a completely solved issue this season. Mm-hmm. By actually, like, giving the different, the th- our three group of, our three groups in the main characters, like, their own, act- like, their actual own missions. Yeah, there's three main storylines going on, essentially. There's straight up three main storylines. Instead of having these three sets of characters try, functionally trying to solve the same thing, um, they're all working towards a different primary goal and therefore dealing with different things. Um, and I think that, that, just, that may, that's how you get this really, really great pacing and this really tight writing structure is that like you you have solved the issue of 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 the middle of the season getting repetitive and and draggy because I'm watching the characters do different things and I am invested in what's going on with um Joyce trying to rescue rescue Hopper and that's not a spoiler we all knew that Hopper was alive uh, but <laughs> well they showed it at the, at the end of the last season exactly like we so, all know. Yes, we're going to get into mild spoilers for the first seven episodes of the show. First seven episodes. This is your chance to go away. Yes. All if right. you don't want to hear some things, I don't know, close, pull up another one of our podcasts. Okay. But so onward we go. Yeah. yeah. But this, you, you've got Joyce over here, Joyce and Murray over here rescuing Hopper from Russia. Um, and that's it's entirely its own mission with its own end goal. Um, and then back in Hawkins, you've got the the kids, the, you've got the, the Hawkins kids um, fighting Vecna, 
and trying to figure that, solve that mystery of the upside down. Um, yeah. And more kids are dying and stuff and try, just trying to solve it. And then over in California, you've got um, Eleven and Mike and uh, Jonathan and Will uh, having their, their uh, character development time. In addition to... In addition to, yeah. In addition to saving out. In addition. Well, that shifts, and then it shifts to they have to go basically find yeah, it and help out. But, like, yeah. this allow like, it, so it allows for the structure to not feel so repetitive. It's not like when all three of them are in Hawkins. Like, it's not like season two I found to be the worst for this, honestly. Because in season one, it was less frustrating. I'm like, I understand why Joyce isn't involving her child, her the her her kids' friends in this conversation, and I understand why Mike and his friends aren't bringing adults into it. Like I get it, I get why he thinks his sister won't believe him, and et cetera, et cetera. Right? Like I understand. Season two was the worst for this though, when the, all of these kids they were functionally trying to solve the same thing, which is the realization that the upside down wasn't gone, and that the gates weren't all closed, et cetera, et cetera. Right? Like they were dealing with their own thing, but it got yeah. really, really annoying. Why aren't you talking to each other? At this point, like, Mike and your friend, at this point, you guys know that you can go to Sheriff Hopper and Joyce, and maybe they'll tell you to stop, but, like, you know that they'll believe you. Mm-hmm. And why, Nancy, why aren't you talking to your siblings who you know were just as involved as you with it? Like, it, it got really frustrating for me in season two, and they were all functionally figuring out the exact same thing but just not talking to each other about it. And I'm repeating myself now, and I apologize for that. But it was always no, the, no, no. It was always the thing that dragged the writing for the show for me, and they just they cleaned it up so much this season, and it's such an improvement, and I'm so, I'm so happy for that, because it makes the new season so fucking great. Um, ex- I feel ex- like they got, they used, they use their, well, freedom to make longer episodes, for one. And two, they use their time. That, was it three years since the last season? Correct? Um, yeah. Yeah, last season was so, three years. Oh, my God. They felt like they used all this time they had to polish it, you know? Yeah. There's a lot of uh, polishing. Everything felt very tight. Um. All the characters are really well written. Uh, I like each of the storylines for their own intricacy. Wow, I'm I, I'm falling over my words today. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um. Did you have a favorite of the main storylines that like you were most excited to like? Um, move forward. I'm definitely most excited. Um, I think I'm the most excited. I'm definitely the most invested in what's going on in Hawkins. Yeah, Hawkins is um, the main. Okay, I get. I have, like I said, I need to watch episode seven, eight, nine still. What okay. episode four? Season four, episode four, I think is the best episode of this show ever. What happens in that one specifically? That's the running up that hill. Oh yes, that that sequence is oh. the best sequence in the entirety of the show. Yeah. Like 
And you know what? I was watching that sequence knowing full well Max was going to be fine. Yeah. Because, you know, the internet had, I, like, I'd, I'd gotten the osmosis from the internet on it, right? So, like, I knew. I knew, like, I knew it was coming, and I knew that she was going to get out. But, like, I was crying, and I was yelling at the screen, and I was, like, freaking out the whole time. Like, it was so good. It was fantastic. I, I still get, I was watching the clip on YouTube because they uploaded it, like, you know, from their channel. And uh, it was, it still gives me chills. <laughs> the The music arrangement of that sequence is phenomenal. And it builds the tension so much. It's genuinely, that whole episode is genuinely so amazing. It's also the episode with Robert England. Yes. Um... Oh, by the way, I'm sorry, this is like the least important thing in the world. But so Robert England plays um a character this season. Yes. Love to see him. And then in like the next episode, Dustin is referencing Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> and I don't know if that was on purpose. Or well, not. Well that's not Robert England. That's you know. <laughs> The poor blind, the poor, the poor, uh, psychotic blind man just looks a whole lot like Robert. Yeah, just, uh, just a coincidence. Just coincidentally. Yeah. I don't know. I'm also, the show is set in 1986, uh, this season, and 1986 is also the year that Winona Ryder started acting. Oh. Um, what I'm saying is if season five doesn't have, like, a Beetlejuice or a, a Heather's joke. You're writing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it will be Sister Cups. It doesn't have to be, like, obnoxious, but, like, something. Something about how that looks like, like, something. 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 I, I want an acknowledgement that one of Winona Ryder's movies are in theaters. Maybe it'll be on the a marquee of a movie theater, you know. Like, just put Beetlejuice on a, on one of the on the, on a marquee. That's all I need. That's all I need. Well, maybe I should get the uh, the Ducker uh, the what? The Duffer Brothers. The Duffer Brothers, yes. Uh, I should get their personal email address. Oh yeah, <laughs> my friend will come fight you if you don't do this. <laughs> and then I'll just send them a picture of you in a fighting stance. Oh, that's very intimidating. <laughs> Just piss up, you know. Like Murray. Like Murray on the yes. plane. Ready to go. Yes. Murray on the plane. Hey, he did well. He did! He did a good job. I was very proud of him. Um, um, my favorite characters on this show are Hopper and and Joyce, however, so I am, of course, on my seat for that. I'm, like, upset, like, I I need their reunion, like, I need air. Um, (laughs) like, Joyce, I don't know if I've told this particular story on it, probably, because I tell it all the time because I'm really indignant about it. I didn't know Winona Ryder was in this show 
until the day I sat down and started watching it, and I saw her name pop up in the opening credits. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Do you mean I've been avoiding this show for a year and a half, and no one told me? Wait, you didn't even, you didn't start it when, you didn't watch it when it first came out? No. You were, like, late? Because, okay. When this show came out, yes. the advertising I saw was very, it leaned into the group of little boys playing D&D in their basement and going on an E.T. adventure. Um, and I also wasn't paying very close attention, so I actually didn't notice that Eleven was a girl, like, on the posters. I was just like, oh, it's a kid, whatever. Like, I, d- I, didn't, I, d- I didn't absorb that as information, really. So I was like, I just, I was, I couldn't, I didn't care. Because I was frustrated. Because my whole life, I've never really been able to be in terribly invested in stuff like The Goonies or E.T. or it, like this, this, these stories where girls don't get to be a part of the group. And if they do, they are either an obnoxious sister or they exist for the boys to fight over them. Fair enough. Uh, like, see it. Where, where Beverly's entire role in that group is the boys fighting over who gets to date her. Yes. Um, and it's, I hated it. It bothered me so much that I don't, it's like little girls didn't just get to be a part of these stories. Um, and so I didn't really care. I didn't care much. Um, and I asked someone dead to their face when they were like, oh, it's so good. Dead ass. I said, Tell me about the female characters on this show. Like, I expressed that thing that I just did. And I said, so can you tell me the female characters on the show? And after explaining that whole thing, and he goes, well, there's the mom of the kid that goes missing. Mm-hmm. Oh, you mean fucking Winona Ryder, you fucking piece of shit? You <laughs> so pissed. Like, I cannot believe no one told me in that conversation. This was a group conversation, and not one person was like, oh, but why not a writer? <laughs> so annoying. Um, and he mentioned Nancy, and he said, uh, the, and then there's the uh, the older sister of the main kid, Mike, and I was sitting here, did not mention Eleven. How do you not mention Eleven? How do I stand here and be like, tell me about the female characters on Stranger Things, and you don't mention Eleven? I have no idea. You um, mean not mentioning the central character of the entire show? Like, oh yeah, and also the main character who has super, who's like Baby Carrie. Yeah. It is. <laughs> um. So that immediately. That cement when he so when he said that to me that cemented my disinterest because I was like okay you can't even give me their names like you your attributes of these characters are their relationships to the men or the boys their children but like you know your attributes of these characters are how they relate to the male characters on the show they're the mom they're the sister and that's precisely what I was tired of right. Um, and I was just mentioning this casually on Twitter one day, and then Josh, the horror guru, um, yes. 
responded to me and is like, you don't want to fight? And he's like, you don't want to watch an 11-year-old girl fight a demogorgon? And I was like, homie, what? (laughs) And he was like, yeah, she's got, like, carry superpowers. You don't want to see. And I was like, what? (laughs) What? They did you dirty. <laughs> so I was just like, <sighs> so I finally sat down to watch it like the day after that. Yeah. Um, and then I saw Winona Ryder's name in the credits, and I was like, motherfuckers! Did you cancel all your friends? Um, I should have. I should have been like, I don't know what's wrong with any of you that I was standing here saying these are the reasons I don't want to watch this show, and none of you were like, but Winona Ryder and Baby Carrie, and I was like, fucking Christ. Um. And now you're sitting here lo- loving this show. Yes, and <laughs> in season four, which I think is my favorite season. Season three gave us a lesbian. It did give us a lesbian section. I will say, okay, and I, actually, if I can elaborate a little bit more on female relationships on this show. Yes. Um. So I actually, um, I did season two is my least favorite season. For a few reasons, like I said, it's the most frustrating for that uh, pacing problem. But also, and people disagree with me about this all the time when I say it because they're like, "This is a normal way for a teenage, like an adolescent girl, to act." But my absolute least favorite fucking trope in media is the thing where two Two girls hate each other for literally no other reason than the fact that they're both girls. And they're kind of... I I hate that shit. I hate it so much. Um, And they kind of pulled that in season two with Max, where Eleven goes to see Mike and then just sees him standing in the same room as Max and gets mad and, and runs away. Um, and that frustrates me for a lot of reasons because it doesn't, again, it's just doing the trope. Like, I don't care how you want to spin it. You're just doing the shitty trope that I hate. Um, and on top of it, there is not a good justification to me for it. People love to be like, well, she doesn't understand. No, exactly. She doesn't understand. Why would she come to this conclusion? She has absolutely no socialization to ever at all assume that there's, that she's been replaced because there's someone else, there's another girl in the room. I don't, I, I genuinely consider it a, just, a, just a lazy plot point. I really, a lazy writing decision. I really do. And I don't, people try so hard to justify it to me. And I'm like, no, I just think it's bad writing and I don't like it. Um, but the Duffer brothers made up for that in season three by making Eleven and Max best friends. And it was the best yes. part of that whole season. 
And I was like, there you go, you fixed it. Fix the things. Because Eleven deserved, both Max and Eleven deserved that female friendship with each other so much. Yes. And it makes me so, it was the best, it was the best part of season three. It's just, that, that meant, okay, the, the two best parts of season three, the strong female friendships, Max and Eleven, and then, um, Steve and Robin. Oh, right. Those are the two highlights of season three. And, like, I appreciate that. I appreciate the... And then season three, they also, you know, gave us Erica, for real. Like, I know she was there before, but, like, they made her an actual character. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, they gave her that weird uh, pro-capitalism speech, which is uh, questionable. But... I like what they, like, Erica's a whole character. She's a whole person. With interests and a personality. And season four continues on And season four elaborates on it. And it's, it's, it makes me happy. It makes me happy that the Duffer brothers did not just fall on their laurels of, oh, well, we've got these three female char- prominent characters already between Joyce, Eleven, and Nancy. Um. Yeah. With each season, they just kept giving us more. They gave us, they gave us Max, they gave us Robin, they gave us Erica, and I appreciate it so much. I really, really do. It, it makes, and isn't that to say the show can't do better in many, many regards of representation and diversity and everything? I'm not saying this is the end all be all, but for me, for me, considering the exact point and place for why I didn't particularly want to watch this show when it first came out, uh, for me, the fact yeah. that the show has so many female characters who are all so different and three-dimensional, it, it just, it, it means a lot to me. <laughs> and yeah, I can, yeah. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> the show, uh, so... Yeah, I've loved it since season one. I started when the show started, but um, a few weeks ago, I got I got COVID, which sucked. Um, but what helped me get through it and annoy, and, and ignore the, the bad parts was watching Stranger. This new season, it was really nice. Um, so. And then season four has given us Eddie. Yes, Eddie. Who I love with my whole heart and soul. Um, and I knew, here's the thing. Here's the thing about Eddie Munson, um, who is my new favorite character. <laughs> um, is that I, I got spoiled pretty quickly on the fact that Eddie died. Yeah. I have not finished the season yet, so we're not going to mention too many other spoilers, uh, beyond episode seven, but I do know oh. that already. So, I went into this season, I started it yesterday, um, I went into it like, I'm gonna fall in love with the, with the handsome metalhead who is quoting Lord of the Rings. And then I'm gonna have my heart broken. That's just, that's just yeah. the, gonna be the order of operations here. Uh, that's that's how it goes. 
I fell in love with him too. Don't worry. He's a very lovable character. He is. He's so sweet. And I think it a lot of it comes down to um Joseph Quinn. That's his name, right? Yeah. Yeah. A, a lot of I feel like a lot of Eddie's charm is not so much like not and again. I we just spent a lot of time praising it up for brothers. I don't want this to come across as like an insult to their writing of the character, but I feel like so much of what makes Eddie as likable and charming and as much of a fan favorite is the perform is is Joseph Quinn's performance. Yeah, I think he makes a lot of so. character decisions in his performance that makes the audience that made the audience love him as much as we do. Um, that it doesn't necessarily come directly from the writing of the character. Like, it's a very, like, like his relation, the entire relationship and dynamic he has with Chrissy, mm-hmm. could, as written, could be exactly the same, but come across in t- as an entirely different dynamic with a different performance from the actor. Um, and I think, I think, uh, Joseph Quinn's, like, decision to, like, he, he, he made Eddie into this very, it's not that his toughness is a performance, but Eddie is a much softer and kinder person than he projects. Yes. And that very clearly comes out, uh, with, like, with Chrissy. Obviously, but I think with Dustin too. I was gonna say, but I, th- I think also very clearly with with Dustin with the kids. Like, yes, he wants to impress them, but I think he cares about them so much, and he wants them to be safe. Yes, and that's very clear to me. Yeah. Like, he wants them to feel safe in high school. He wants them to feel safe in the world. Like, he sees himself in them. He does. He looks at it's very it's very clear clear that this is just what he does and what he's been doing in high school is that he sees these lonely nerdy kids and decides no, you're not going to be by yourself. You're not going to be alone. I'm going to collect you and I'm going to put you in my club. Pretty much. And and I think that like it it's it's sweet. And it's gentle and it's kind and it's that's the real thing, right? Is lots of people are very much harping on the like you know we can all we can all focus on the aesthetics of Eddie's character, which yes are all hot and sexy and stuff. But I think that the real appeal is the the squishy inside. Yes, very much so. He is. I mean, they could have easily played him off as a jerk. You know, I feel like that would have been easy. Would have been really, really easy. But they subvert that, right? Especially when I think I I think I'm correct in this, given that I know that he he dies uh, saving everyone, and that I, I what I've observed so far this season is that he seems to be very very he seems to hold a lot of anger at him and resentment towards himself about the mm-hmm. fact that Percy was in danger and he ran away. Yes. Uh, like that's that he keeps because he keeps saying that he keeps calling himself a coward. He keeps saying that he ran, um, which was the correct thing for him to do because what else was he going to do? 
he couldn't like he couldn't. I know, I, I, I'm like wait, right? wait but, I know he's he's kicking himself for that, but like, like, like he you, shouldn't be. You weren't gonna be able to save her, Eddie. Like it wasn't. But um, um, I think any any rational person probably would have or should have run away from that. <laughs> Suddenly, this girl is floating in the air. Her arms and legs break off, and her eyeballs pop into her skull, and she's dead <laughs> in front of you. What's the natural reaction to that? It it seems to me that his um character motivation is to is to be a protector. Yes. And so. he wants to make up for his inability to protect the people that he did. Um, yes, and I won't spoil. <laughs> and it does feel like to me the uh, the sus football or not football, the sus basketball captain. Um Feels like he exists to be a direct foil to Eddie. Yeah. Uh, like, 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 extremely so. Because he's out here also being like that. Like that was his girlfriend that died, right? And he's clearly mad that she's dead. Yes. But he's not taking that on as like any responsibility unto himself to have protected her. No, he's taking on as a responsibility for him to. Trying to get, get vengeance. Yeah. Um, he doesn't feel guilt. He feels, uh, he's, he, he's not internalizing guilt. He's projecting anger. And I. Can, can I, I also mention how I appreciate that the show is picking up on the satanic panic of the 80s and, and mi- mixing that in with D&D I and think good detail. the assumptions onto like the metalhead? I thought that's a really good detail that they were. They're playing with. Well, I, th- I think it's great. I think it works great. Yeah. Yeah, I suspect. So. I suspect that um, the what's his bucket basketball captain? I can't remember his name. Um, I don't remember either. It's because he's so. Um, not not an interesting character. He's that's not fair. He's he's serving his his purpose very well. Um, he's an antagonist. He's an antagonist, and I don't particularly care for him. Um, but like he very clearly like is he is taking the incorrect approach. He's not seeking to protect anybody from the danger he perceives as being there. He just wants to get vengeance on it. Whereas I am at, yeah. as Eddie's story arc very much seems to be in direct contrast to that, which is that he wants to make up for the people he couldn't protect by protecting more people. Um, yes. And I think I think that just really taps into like what we were saying before, which is that his his whole thing seems to be wanting to protect Dustin, right? In, and yes. And Mike and Lucas to an extent, but like clearly, clearly mostly him and Dustin are the two who are like the most connected, right? Um, right, but like I, I feel like that this this need to like herd the the loser children into his club to keep them safe and give them a social circle where they can be happy. Um, I think it's the same it's the same urge at the base of this character, which is that he's very selfless. Um, yes, and he wants to pr- he's a he's a protector, and that's what he wants wants to do. And I suspect 
I don't really know the context. I just know that he's playing Iron Maiden and. Ah, <laughs> uh, Metallica. Uh, Metallica. He's playing Metallica, and he and there's that meme where he's holding up the Iron Maiden cassette. <laughs> It's yes. it's Master of Puppets. I'm 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 I am also a metal fan. Before the people yell at me, I'm just I just I, my brain just mixed up the, t- the the titles in my head that he's playing Metallica and um that he dies. <laughs> and I don't know. You'll have to see. My suspicion is that this is the arc we're having here. Is that he's dying? He he's dying in the in Express. With the express goal of protecting other people. Maybe I'm not sure. <laughs> because that's the only way. That's how you get. That's the only way you kill off a character that's lovable and have people not be mad about it. <laughs> It'd be funny though. It would be funny if you set up all of this character development and all of this angst and anguish in him, and then he just died um, because he tripped and fell over a cliff or something. <laughs> No, actually, everyone was fine. He just... Or he dies off screen. I'll fight a bitch. Are you kidding me? No. Hey, where's Eddie? He got picked up by, 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 by a, by a big monster. We're not gonna see it. Flew him away. Damn. What a cool thing to see. <laughs> if we had it in the budget. And then they all just stare at the camera. <laughs> no, this show doesn't break the fourth wall yet. Um, and again, I haven't finished the season yet, so I can't fully comment on this. Um, but I will say, um, the grapevine seems very mad about the fact that Will does not turn and look at the camera and declare that he is gay for the audience. Um... <laughs> In this show set in 1986 at the height of the AIDS crisis with this, specifically with this very traumatized kid, um, from the middle of bumfuck nowhere, Indiana, with a dad who we have been explicitly told used to call him a little faggot when he was a kid, when he was a baby. Um, I don't know. Maybe he just like doesn't feel comfortable saying that out loud, guys. I feel I like why that would be. I can't. I can't guess why. <laughs> 1986 was a great time to be gay. What are you talking about, oh, professional? Hey. The best time. The fantastic period of time. I don't know. People want things. I feel done in ways that don't make sense. Listen. Listen, because people are, my issue is that people are calling it queer baiting, and I'm not going to, I just don't have, listen, if you're entire, if it's a subtext of his gayness, of his queerness, is so evident that, like, that no one is debating whether or not Will's gay, right? Mm-hmm. That's the thing. That's not, the, no, literally no one is saying otherwise. When your subtext, no one's, no one's sub- said anything confirming. Yeah, from the from the from the uh, you know the team behind it, they're not saying. But 
it's there. There, like no, I I haven't seen a single like person try and claim that the subtext of this season is not that Will is gay, right? I haven't seen a single person who seems to think otherwise. Like it's very clear, and I agree from what I've seen so far. It is very clear that this is the subtext they're going for is that he very clearly has a crush on Mike, and so like if in season five they do a heel turn and give him a girlfriend, yes. Then that's queer baiting, and we can be mad about it. But right now, right now, uh, don't be mad. It's right now we don't get to be mad yet. Right now we're just in the middle of the story. Put down your pitchfork. Put down the pitchfork. Wait for next season. Season five, they've the Duffer Brothers have confirmed the last season, right? Yes. Yeah, season five is the last season. That will, it will come to some sort of resolution. Whether or not it's the one you want remains to be seen, obviously. But frankly, anything, like, short of giving him a girlfriend, you can't really do much to undo the obvious subtext you've established about Will as a person so far. Like, they straight up had him... Listen, I'm sorry, this is another spoiler I received, but I've seen the parallel shop between him and Robin. I saw someone, someone put it up for me. Like, I saw someone put it on TikTok, and I was like, like, this very blatant shot that mirrors Robin realizing that the girl she has a crush on has a boyfriend, and then they did the exact same shot with Will in between Mike and Eleven. I saw that, and I was like, like, this is not subtle. This is not a subtle thing. So, like, I... They they have said that everything in the show is there for a reason, so... For a reason. And they had that scene, and again, in, like, the first episode, they've got that bit in the classroom where there's a girl obviously trying to flirt with him, and he's very vi- visibly not wanting it. Like, it... This is not, like, it's just such evident subtext that short of just giving him, undoing it all to give him and giving him a girlfriend, like, you don't get to accuse a show of queer baiting because he's not carrying pride flags. Right. Even Robin, like, Robin never looked at the camera and was like, I'm a lesbian. What did she say exactly? I don't remember. Her, Robin's coming out scene was fantastic, and it made me cry in season three. Um, Steve was about to tell her that he had feelings for her. Mm-hmm. And she basically interrupted him, you know, with some allusions to how, like, I can't like you the way you want me to like you. Um, mm-hmm. And she decided to start telling a story about someone she had a crush on and then ended with saying it was, it was Tammy Thompson. She never That's right. Okay. Right. She's like just talking about this person she had class with that like I had I I felt all these ways when I would be around them etc. Right. And she's like it was Tammy Thompson, and Steve is like but Tammy Thompson's a girl and she just goes yeah. Okay. And there's this silent agreement between the two of them that Steve loves and supports her regardless. Um, yeah. But like there's still no labels with Robin. The show has communicated to us that she is gay. 
without that. Did Steve ever call her lesbian in this season? This season, I don't remember. No. But okay. Um, unless he does it in the last three episodes, and I just haven't seen it yet. But no. No, no earlier on, I know he was more like having a conversation with her in the car. Oh yeah, no. In that scene, he uh, they talked about liking boobs. He he said you like boobs. Oh yeah, that was funny. <laughs> That's what he said. <laughs> you know who pauses past times at Ridgemont High at fifty three minutes and five seconds? People oh, yeah. who boobs. Robin. Oh yeah. <laughs> I like boobies. You like boobies. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's really funny. <laughs> yeah, because this is this is all fresh in your mind, right? Yeah, you I watched it yesterday. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> I watched it like a month ago, so I remember. I'm forgetting. Anyway. Season four is fantastic. Um, I don't know. I have to watch season one again to see with which one I genuinely think is the best season. Um, my only um, downward take on season four is I'm not sure that I'm super in love with this retcon that Eleven was, like, living with all of these other children. And that they were allowed to socialize with each other to the degree that um, she was being bullied. Like, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that. I feel like it undermines a little bit the. um, Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I do. Um, it doesn't, like, ruin it for me, but, like, part of what made Eleven feel so sad in the first season, to me at least, was this sense of, like, supreme isolation. Like, part of the reason she latched on to Mike and and the other boys as much as she did is because you get the sense that this is, like, the first other children she's gotten to be around. Right. Um... It doesn't bother me that much, but I can understand your perspective. It doesn't. It doesn't make. It doesn't like. It doesn't ruin the show for me by any means. Um, I just like it less. Not the show. I like it. I like. I like the conceit less of her having yeah. had all these other kids around her than her like complete isolation. I just realized. I mean, I mean, I realize there's still a. Sh- you still don't know about a shoe that drops. <laughs> no, probably at this present at this present moment, what I know and what Eleven knows is that she accidentally killed the entire classroom of other um psychic children. I suspect oh. something in that memory is being um obfuscated. <laughs> Maybe. I just the detail to this that I don't, that we're gonna. What do you mean? If Cheryl, 
uh, answering questions that it's setting up. Crazy. You'll just have to see. It all comes together. I love it when a plan comes together. Yes. The plan as in the television show. Right. So, overall thoughts, season four good. Season four great, yeah. Yes. Um, if you liked any other season of this show, you should watch this one because it's so I think uh I think uh I think that we're 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 leading towards the uh, wrapping up of the conversation because Stranger Things is awesome and I'm glad that we were able to talk about it. I agree. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on today? Um Oh, I guess Stranger Things adjacent quickly. Um it's really weird how celebrities, adult musicians, have texted slash DM'd the young cast members of Stranger Things. Yeah, the Doja um, Cat thing. The Doja Cat thing. Okay. And the Drake thing. And the Drake thing. The Drake thing is worse. To be great, like uh, to be fair to Doja Cat, this is not nearly as bad as what Drake was doing with Millie Bobby Brown. That was way more sus. And she was also still, like, 14. Like, at least Noah's yeah. 17. But, like... I agree. The whole thing with Doja Cat specifically is so strange to me. Because if Doja had just, like, said nothing, no one would even be talking about it. Like, would you even be aware of it? Do you suppose if Doja say a thing about it? Probably not. So. I actually saw. I saw that I follow Noah uh, Shep on on TikTok where he posted this. <laughs> I saw like I, I saw that TikTok last uh, uh, the like the night like before before the yeah. whole thing happened. I saw it and I was like, "Ha, that's funny." And I didn't really think, I didn't really, in the moment, I didn't really think all that much about it. It felt like a joke. Right. Like, it felt like, my assumption, honestly, was maybe that he DM'd her first. Like, I was looking at this, like, oh, haha, like, like they're kidding around. Like, that was my thought. Like, I thought it was funny. Um, and then she came on, and she made such a thing about it. And I was like, were you, wait, so you were, like, seriously asking this 17-year-olds to help you hook up with his adult co-star? I am I, I am really annoyed with the reaction to that, where they're giving him more shit than they're giving her a grown-ass woman. Like, like, that's a weird, that's a weird thing for you to do, Doja. And, like, again, on the arguments are all I, almost and that's the, like I, I did. I, I didn't really. I didn't find it that weird when I because it, it had very much like they were joking, like it like they were kidding around, right? So like the fact that she's taking it so dead serious is, has made it weird. 
that you're yeah. so sincerely doing this. Um, like, I don't personally think it's the end of the world that Doja Cat, who's 26, and Noah Sharp, who's 17 in the Star of Stranger Things, like, follow each other on Instagram and will occasionally, like, DM each other. I don't find that super weird on space by itself. Right. Um, but the fact that you, uh, you as the adults, are interpreting these conversations as being like really personal and private is weird to me. From your, Very your weird. things, um, I fi- like I think that that's strange. Um, you, it's one thing to be willing to be an adult who will have these con, who is willing to be like listen to a younger person's um, personal problems. You as the adult in that dynamic should never be the one going to the teenager with something vulnerable like that. If this wasn't a joke to you, if that was a serious and sincere conversation, then that's weird that you went to the 17-year-old with it. Yeah, that's exactly been my point. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm not. I'm, they don't have to apologize to me. I just appreciate that you're agreeing with me. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not going to name her name or anything, but um, I'm actually, so I'm 24, right? I just, my job at Target, because I am moving to go to grad school. Um, at that job, so I, I, I worked at the cafe slash the Starbucks on the latter half of working there. Um, and at the job, there was a girl who works at the Starbucks, and she's like 17, and I'm 24, and she, she, th- she would always tell me how cool she thought I was. Like, she thought that I was um, a cool and interesting person, and she likes talking to me, and I was always down to talk to her, and I would always listen to anything she wanted to tell me. But, like, there's a certain responsibility you're always going to have as the adult in a relationship dynamic like that. Yeah. Like, there's a certain degree of, like, distance you need to keep of, like, no, you don't have to act like their parent or whatever, but, like, there's a degree of responsibility you have where you need to remember that, like, you are a grown-up and they aren't. Exactly. Um, yeah, you have to have that boundary. Like, you, you have to have that. Like, it doesn't matter if the 17-year-old is super famous. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter you that you, you, need, you need to be, like, cognizant of that uh, concept. And so this whole thing is just, it's weird, and I don't know why Doja put herself in the position to be the center of a conversation like this. It's very strange. Yeah. It's very weird. And on on the whole, the public and adults on the internet, both people who interact with the kids directly, but also just anonymous adults on the internet, treat these kids so weird. Yes, I remember a story from Gaten a few years ago when, like, like he was having, like, dinner out in public with his, his family, and then somebody came up and asked for a picture, and they said, you know, Gaten, with his dad, I think, said, oh, not right now, we're just kind of in the middle of something, and then this adult yelled at Gaten, like he was, a, you know, like, as, like, like, to try and, like, I don't know, bully him into taking the picture. Like, saying, you're being so rude. You know, trying to talk, like, I mean, talk to him like he's a kid, obviously, but. 
Oh, I don't know why you thought how you thought that was going to pan out for you, but yeah, I remember Gaten telling that story, and I always felt really weird about that. Like these kids never deserve that level of like no boundaries. You know what I mean? It was like another example, and I brought this up on Twitter too. Was that me? That Millie Bobby Brown is violently homophobic meme. Oh. Right, I remember that too. A bunch of fake captions on her Snap and Instagram pictures. And it was like, this is fucked up. Like, they were, she was like 13 or 14 when they were doing that. Like, she's, I think she's 18 now. But she was a baby when people started doing that. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Like, actually, what's wrong with you? Why do you think this is funny? I I don't understand people. I don't understand it. I guess I don't. Why are you roping a I child? I guess I don't view them as... You're joke. It's one thing yeah, when we're doing the homophobic... don't view them as kids. It's one thing when we were doing... when Like, right now, we've got the homophobic dog meme, which I'm also not a fan of. I think that we need to pull back on the ironic homophobia because way too many straight people think right. it's funny. Um, once the ironic homophobia leaves the community, we got to... Gotta gotta put brakes on that shit. But like, at least that's a dog. Like, this is a child. A real actual like the joke wasn't Eleven is homophobic. The joke was Millie Bobby Brown is homophobic. And like, this isn't funny. Uh, how is that funny in any way? Like, this is a baby. This is a real person. This is a child. This is a real like you. It was like you just said a second ago that we don't people don't view them as actual kids at all. I know David Harbour They view them as objects Yeah They view them as props David Harbour has spoken About his uh, personal frustration With this at length Especially in regards to Millie Because she's obviously Uh the kid The child actor she spent the most time with He's spent the most time with But like Mm -hmm. He's spoken at length Specifically with Millie About you know The same thing that like Happened to Emma Watson And the Olsen twins And Lindsay Lohan And Drew Barrymore And all of All of the girls who all of the women who came of age, and Natalie Portman, all all of the underage girls who turned 18 in the spotlight. But, like, I know with Millie specifically, he talked about a lot of concerns about how gross and creepy adult men are about her. And how he wishes he could better protect her from that. But he's expressed this about all of the kids, that he's like, none of these kids have gotten to have, like, a particularly real childhood? No. I think there was, there was a quote recently where he was like, you know, that, like, no matter how hard you try, when you're in a position as a kid and you have this much fame and this much money and this much responsibility to a job, you just aren't a kid anymore. As hard as we can try, like, right. it's you to grow up really fast in a lot of ways and that just is unfair and he's right like he's completely right and I don't really know what the solution is to that um other than like we could outlaw child acting but I don't think anybody really wants to do that um so you know like it's it's a difficult uh line to 
to walk and to balance. Um, the the best you can do is protect the night of them. I keep shouting that the little babies who are playing Luke and Leia on the Obi Wan show need to just not be allowed on the internet at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Until they're, like, 17, 18 years old. Like, you know, just don't let them on. Don't let them look at it. Because I just don't know. I, like, I don't know what else there is you can do to, like, protect. Like, like it's a difficult thing. And it's hard to know what, what any of us can do to help to help them. I think, I think, like, like you said, we just need to keep you know, keep people aware, you know, that these are children. Mm. And we have to hope that their families are really good at taking care of them. That's all we can do. Um, I, I could be wrong in attributing this to Christopher Columbus. It might have been a different producer. But when the children, when, when Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson and Rupert Grant, uh, auditioned for the first Harry Potter movie, mm-hmm. uh, Christopher, Christopher Columbus went to each of their parents and apparently, uh, said to them, again, if I'm attributing that incorrectly to Christopher Columbus, anybody feel free to correct me, but, um, uh, but I he basically, you're right. yeah, but he, he, he said to them, uh, basically like, if they decide in between movies that they don't want to do this anymore, Will you let them stop? And because the answer he wanted was yes. Because he wanted, I think he saw firsthand what happened with Macaulay Culkin. Uh-huh. Right? Like he made Christopher Columbus made Home Alone. Like I think he really, really saw that happen. And I think he never wanted to be a part of, have a hand in that again. I, um, I imagine so. Uh, so he, and he really wanted on the Harry Potter sets. And this continued even after he left. You know, he was only there for the first two movies, but this continued. And I think for the most part was very successful. He wanted to foster a safe growing environment for them. Yeah. And and I think they did. I know Daniel Radcliffe for it. Not to overly praise Harry Potter, of course, fuck J.K. Rowling, fuck Turfs, uh, disclaimer, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but, but. Oh, no, no. The people who made the movies are different from her. Different from her. Um. Well, you know, I know Daniel Radcliffe had his um, struggles with alcohol for like two years there, and then, but you know, he they helped. He got he got help fairly quickly, and now he's sober. Yeah. It didn't like destroy his life for a few years. It was a problem. He had a support system around him that genuinely cared about him, and he got help. Almost yeah. immediately. So, like, and you know, in between, Rupert Grint retired from acting for a very long time. I know he's getting back into it now. Um, Emma Watson went to college and got her degree before she kept acting after Harry Potter. Like, these, they grew up to be very well rounded human beings from, you know, the, yeah. my perspective at least. Like, they, they were, they were very shielded from the usual, like, child star public destruction. And and I will say Rupert Grint as an adult is on the servant on uh, Apple, and he is my favorite character and performance in that show. Yeah. Just, yes, I love him. Oh, I should watch it. I think you would like it. It's very um, 
slow paced. It's very much atmosphere and building things up. But um, do you know anything about it? No, this is the first. I knew that he had a new actor. Like I said, I, I knew that he had come out of retirement relatively recently. Okay, I'll I'll give a very I'll give a very brief uh, like synopsis of what it is. The sermon is about a uh, a couple who uh, live, I think, in New York, um, but they live in this like really interesting looking like sort of house. It's kind of like like an apartment almost, um, but the 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 you know the man in the relationship is is a chef who is kind of famous and she's a reporter on the news local news and her brother Julian is great Rupert Grant's character um but they had a kid who passed away a baby who passed away and in her grief the counselors have given her a very lifelike doll um, of a baby. Oh, one of those reborn dolls? Yes. And um, they basically, because she's treating the doll like an actual baby, they get a nanny and who's like, I think like only like 17 or 18. And uh, let's just say that she might be inadvertently connected to some sort of weird religious cult. And the not alive baby becomes alive. And I won't, I won't say anything more, but it's a lot of the mystery of why this is happening, what she has to do with it. And, uh, it's creepy. Uh, um, but Rupert Grant, his character, Julian, is the brother who's very protective of his sister. And he, uh, he is simultaneously He's, like, a very important character, like, story-wise, but also he provides a lot of great comedic relief to the to the show. Um, so. It's M. Night Shyamalan, if you didn't know, who, do, who does the show. It's nice that he's doing something good again. I know. It's a good show. It's not, like, his I, per se. He, I hope for the best from M. Night, and it, it's a shame that he, um... Doesn't always make great things. But anyway. Yeah. You should check it out if you get Apple. It's only on Apple. Um, I don't, but my parents, I think, do on their TV. So. It's like uh, three seasons so far, and each each episode's 30 minutes. So not too long of an investment. Um, if, that's, if that interests you. No, it does. That's super cool. I'm happy to hear yeah. that Brent um, is acting again and that he's enjoying it and doing well. Yes. Uh, uh, I, think he's, I think he's awesome, so I'm happy for him. <laughs> um, and I think I think this is actually a good point. We're getting to a long episode, so I think this is a good point where we should probably wrap up. Uh, <laughs> um, do you want to do plug where the people can find you, Lizzie? Yes, you can find me at The Final War on TikTok or at Liz Lemon Drop on Twitter. I talk about all of the things you heard me doing today, except sometimes more quippy-like. Yes. And you, you talk good on the Twitters. You should, hey, they should also follow your, uh, you know, yeah, so they should follow you everywhere. Just follow and, me um, 
I'm all over the place. Final Horror on TikTok, yeah. which I love the name. <laughs> I'm a fan of it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I'm Crystal Williams. You can read my articles on Medium. Uh, and you can also follow me on Twitter, Crystal W Rocks. And I tweet a variety of things. So, yeah. Um, thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of of the Gals of Geekdom podcast. I'm sorry, my brain was starting to shut down for a second. Thank you for listening to Gals of Geekdom, everybody. Uh, we will see you on the next episode, and Jazzy will, will probably be back for that one. But until then, goodbye, everybody.